Welcome to the Detoxicity Podcast, a show that tries to reframe the conversation around masculinity, NBD. My name is Mike Joseph. We are now officially in year two of Detoxicity, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be trying out some different ideas. Stay tuned. Of course, I welcome your feedback. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on the show. Also, Follow me on social media. I am Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. I'm always on the hunt for new ideas. So if you have suggestions, you know someone who'd be interested in being on the show, or you yourself would like to be a guest, please reach out. And as I record this, we are still deep into the COVID-19 pandemic, although people are now starting to get vaccinated and we are moving towards the new normal. Please make sure you're being safe and looking out for one another, pandemic or no pandemic. In this episode, I am talking to Zach Borer. Zach is a licensed marriage and family therapist based in Los Angeles, California. Zach is also the co-founder of Backline.Care, a nonprofit organization that provides mental health resources for musicians and employees of the music industry. During our conversation, Zach and I discuss his beginnings as a musician and what led him to explore psychiatry as a profession. We also cover some best practices for self-care, we talk about the toxicity of the music industry, and we discuss a topic that's always really interesting to me, how do people that provide care then care for themselves? Zach provides a lot of insight, he does so with passion. Enjoy the conversation, folks. Hey everybody, my name is Zach Bohr. I currently live in Los Angeles, California. I am a husband. I am the father of two wonderful little girls. I work as a licensed psychotherapist. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. uh, And I work primarily with individuals in the music business. I'm also the co-founder and clinical director of Backline.Care, which is a mental health organization that provides uh, mental health and wellness resources to individuals in the music business. I did some YouTube research, oh, Zach Bohr. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, I really tried to like scrap, erase all of the stuff off there. But it's, some people have posted still, it. There's some, there's some stuff still there. There's an EPK bio of a beardless baby Zach Bohr with his acoustic guitar. Man, traveling around the country before you were Zach Bohr, the psychiatrist, you were Zach Bohr, the musician. And obviously what Backline does and what you did previously both mesh. So I'm just curious, how did it all come together? And that may be a very big question, but. How did it all come together? Well, I mean, the, the, the story is spent most of my upbringing in Tampa, Florida from, I guess we're going to just dive into it here, right? This yeah. Really no, there's really no short answer to this, I guess. Like if anyone tries to think about the trajectory of their own life, it's, it's a convoluted and interesting path of circumstances and coincidence and social construction and all of that stuff. But uh, I spent most of my most of my middle school, high school and college days in, in Florida and was always just a lover of music. And 
as a young teenager started playing the guitar and started taking lessons and really just got into music really, really, really deeply around 14, 15. And it really consumed my life for the rest of my high school and college days. And then when I got to college, I, I remember being in the bars and I went to University of Florida in Gainesville and seeing the, the sort of the guitar player playing the cover songs in the, in the corner. And I was like, huh, maybe I could do that. And so started playing open mics and started gigging out in, in college, really as the, the cover song guy and played, you know, two, three times a night. And then all the while really started diving into writing music, starting to figure out how to, how to write music and trying to discover what my own voice was. And my junior year of college, I studied abroad in Australia and I had met some individuals there who were other study abroad students. One was another guitar player, the other was another bass player. And what they did was they came from a very different musical background that I did. And they started introducing me to this music that I had never really listened to. I had, and it blew my fucking mind. What music was and, it? You know, we really started getting into some of the jam band stuff, some of the instrumental music. So they were big fish fans. And so I never had, I never had the, the really the attention span to listen to sort of long instrumental pieces. And sort of that was really the portal into a lot of this stuff was my, and then we started listening to Medesky Martin and Wood and John Schofield. And then they dropped the Stevie Wonder bomb on me. And I had known the Stevie Wonder stuff, like for sure all of the popular stuff, but, but it was around that point that I really started digging into songs in the key of life and all of these, you know, these monumental, just amazing albums. But through that, I started discovering my musical voice. And through working with the two of them, I started singing more and started playing more and started being more confident in my abilities. And then we, me and one of them moved to New York as a working musician and songwriter in various bands. And then I spent 10 years as a working songwriter, musician living in Manhattan and playing in various different bands with various different people. Had a unfortunate band to break up with one of the, the guys I had been playing with, which was a, an emotional trauma for me, which I now know is an emotional trauma now that I'm a therapist. Do you want to go into and, the breakup or is that off limits? I mean, it's all full circle too because this 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 individual is like a musical brother to me and we just we had a falling out and it was really challenging for me because it was the first time I had ever really been a part of a musical team and was sort of left on my own after that and we were in a band together and they kicked me out of the band and so it was really it was really a really hard time for me I had broken up with the relationship that I was in I had this band breakup that was happening. But I sort of went back to the drawing board as a solo artist and started writing all these songs. And then throughout the next 10 years, just was in all these different iterations of bands and playing with different people and, you know, got into like pop songwriting for a while and was really trying to figure out how I could make a, a living and a career out of it. And it just never really happened. And so after about 10 years, I found myself in a really tough place, wanting to make a, a jump in my life from a personal level 
but really not wanting to continue the grind of what was required of me to quote unquote, make it as I saw it and woke up one day and was depressed and anxious and full of financial fear and Mm. full of insecurity and comparison and just things that were really incongruent to my spirit as a human. And I had to make a choice about what, what I wanted to do and check myself back into therapy and so started seeing a, a career coach and a life coach and landed on becoming a therapist for creatives and specifically for musicians because of my past experience and the lifestyle that I wanted to live moving forward. So I went back to school, got my master's degree, moved out to LA about four and a half years ago, all with the intention of working in the music business. And I have been really you know, lucky to be able to do that over the last five years or so. Has mental health always been something you've been conscious of? Was that something that was a thought in your head even when you were a songwriter or focusing solely on the music business? Not really. I always have been a pretty even person, never really suffered from mental health issues. I mean, listen, I come from a Jewish family, so there's <laughs> there's a lineage of anxiety there and there's definitely some anxious times that I had in my life, but but not really anything that was pressing, not anything that was disruptive to my life in any sort of way. You no, know, the interesting thing is that my older brother is also a therapist. Oh wow. So he's a he's a PhD in family therapy and so I saw his career when I was when I was still playing music I saw what he was doing in his career so there was a there was definitely a, a model for me to to see about what the lifestyle of a therapist could be what the schooling was like and that was always something that was in the back of my head we specialize in different things and our work is vastly different but he was definitely a, a model for me to see what it could be. And, and, you know, the the interesting thing is at the sort of the the breaking point of where I was in my mental health career as a music or mental health journey as a musician, I was seeing it all around me from everybody who I was associating with. So all of the people I was playing music with were depressed or have, they had drug problems. They were sort of like gigging the jazz clubs till four o'clock in the morning and their lifestyles were off and they were really unhealthy. And then I sort of met my, and then I met my wife and my wife at the time was a Broadway actress. And I was introduced to the Broadway community in New York and I saw all of the same things happening in that discipline and that creative discipline. And so I started seeing all of these psychological characteristics and all of these mental health issues that were coming up across creative domains. And so I sort of, you know, was like, there's something here. I want to study this. I want to try to get a handle on what it is about creative endeavors that can exacerbate existing mental health issues and or create mental health issues just by nature and virtue of being in the industries that people reside in. That leads me directly into the next question. Why do you think creatives specifically are so apt to have issues with mental health. I remember there being a study, must've been two or three years ago, where they surveyed musicians in the UK, or maybe it was Europe as a wider, as a continent. And it was something like 60 to 70% of independent musicians reported having some kind of of mental health issue. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it applies 
so heavily to creatives as opposed to upholsters or, or doctors, lawyers? Couple things. I did a podcast a couple weeks ago with someone who brought up the same study. He was, he's a touring crew member, a tour director, tour manager, and said, so I heard about this study that said 73% of, and he's like, what the fuck's with the other 27%? They <laughs> My answer has always been, and I still believe this, that there is a sensitivity to people who are creatives that is different than others. Creatives feel things in a different way. They, they are, they interact with the world in a different way. They access emotion in a different way. And I believe that when you lift the veil on those things, it comes with a price and it comes with a sensitivity and it comes with sensory overload or heightened emotion. You know, there's, there's some interesting research out there about creatives and the ability to, to have divergent thinking, which basically means that a creative can sort of see one thing and see another thing, put them together in a way that other people can't. My favorite, my favorite use of it is, God, I forget the chef's name. In Chicago, I think the restaurant is Alinea Grant something, and I'll, I'll, I forget his name, but he's the chef who lost his taste. I think there's a, a chef's table about him on Netflix, and he talks about his creativity, and he says, I can look at a tree and see the leaves, leaves falling off of the branch, and I see the dish. And I think that is something that creatives, the divergent thinking is that creatives can see something in the world and, and sort of synthesize it into an art in a way that other people can't. And I believe that just comes with sensory overload and it comes with, you know, the brain firing at a different rate than, than sort of quote unquote normal individuals do. And I think that can lead to mental health issues. Not only that, but, you know, a lot of creatives come to their respective careers with a shitload of stuff from their past. I've seen lots of creatives who use their wares, use their traumas, use their experiences as the voice to get their work out. It's through their experiences that they are able to be vulnerable and express themselves in a way that maybe other people, other people can't. So it, it, again, it's a, I think it's a really long convoluted Answer, and I also think that the sort of the, the nature of creative fields as an industry and as a business can contribute greatly to a lot of these underlying issues and you know, can, can really affect individuals with their mental health. And I, I want you to go a little deeper into that because I mostly talk to creatives on this podcast and there are quite a few underlying themes, one of which is imposter syndrome, one of which is the expect, not expectations exactly, but a sense of I have to be this popular, or I have to do this thing to keep up with this other person doing the same thing I do, I'm doing because I need to make money and this is my only gig and so on and so forth. Can you expand a little further into the specific things about the industry part of it, the business part of it, that can really highlight some of those mental health issues? Yeah, and you just, I mean, those are two really 
prevalent points. I mean, I'm curious from your end, like what else, do you, as you talk to creatives, like what, what else do you see? I mean, the two things that you said are consistent to what A, I experienced and B, what I see in the room with me, with my clients, but I'm curious, what else do you hear that are themes from the creatives? Two of the main things yeah. are the imposter syndrome and the the comparisons. I think there's some of the whole, it's being a, a creative, whether it's a musician or an author or an actor, it's not the same as having a quote unquote regular job. And I realize by saying that I'm sort of feeding into the general perception that being a creative is not a real job. So actually that perception's part of it but there's also instability unless you're Rihanna <laughs> or you're Eddie Vedder or whoever, you don't have necessarily a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan. And the instability, the financial instability, the creative instability, the shifting tides of whatever, the fact that a lot of creators feel that creating art is so personal and mm. people feel as though they have to give away or sell parts of their soul in order to make a living. I think all of those things contribute as well. All of it. My experience is very similar in what I hear from, from individuals as well. It's funny, I'm working on a project right now that is addressing a lot of this stuff conceptually. So, you know, again, we'll speak about the music business in particular, because that's where my area of expertise and experience comes from. The structure of the industry is inconsistent everywhere. So the way people maintain relationships with their manager and with their agent and with their label and with their publisher and whoever else it might be can be very, very different for each one. So having an expectation of what that relationship is from the creative is, is challenging. It's sort of moving from one to the next. It's, there's really no governing body. Like there's a lot of stuff in there. There's no HR, right? There, there's no place for artists to go. You know, you brought up the, like Rihanna and Eddie Vedder and, and I will, yes, there might not be financially, financially unstable, but we are only as good in the music business as our last hit record. Right. right. I mean, I guess like a band like Pearl Jam and Rihanna is probably a bit different. Well, but in those cases, you can sort of live off the spoils. There's no reason to be... financially live off of this. Yes. But I think from a mental health standpoint, relevancy is, is intoxicating. Relevancy is a drug unto itself. And you can, you know, be a millionaire, but be irrelevant. And that is a really, really, really hard. I think that the understanding of comparison is really hard, especially with social media. One, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is 20 years ago, the, the charts would come out and you would have to wait for the charts to come out to see where you were. <laughs> yeah. And now there's a real time ticker of how relevant you are. Uh, and that's very, very challenging from a personal standpoint, if you don't meet those expectations. So I think that there's, I think a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I could probably go on for a long time about all of these different things that are within the music business that can exacerbate mental health issues, but, but you're, you're hitting on a lot of them 
financial instability, creative instability, commoditization of art from a creative standpoint, what that requires of somebody to make a living versus what they might actually want to be creating. There can be a lot of tension there, managing expectations, touring, what that creates, right? So tons and tons and tons of stuff. Right. What are some best practices for being able to handle that stuff? I feel like, first of all, therapy in a lot of ways and acknowledging that you have mental health issues, while certainly not as taboo as it was 20 or 25 years ago, is still taboo in a lot of ways. You know, people come out and say on social media that they're, you know, John Mulaney went into rehab and he's getting a lot of support for it, but also getting a lot of backlash for it. And it feels like it's not just one person sitting at a bar or at family dinner saying, hey, I have this, whether it's a drug issue or, hey, I have something to tell you, I'm trans or, or whatever it is. It's not a small group. When you have a life change, when you have a realization, hundreds of thousands or millions of people potentially know about it. So uh, I can't imagine having to deal with, hey, I'm going to go take care of myself on a large scale because there are so many other people involved. And also there are so many people who are going to be quick to criticize or pour over, uh, pour into, or, or yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, you're under a microscope. It's gotta be really hard to make personal decisions while being under that microscope. Sure, sure. And it is really hard. And, you know, each person will respond differently. Each person sort of goes about it differently. It, it's important to sort of recognize too that for all of the people who have a million followers or 10 million followers, there's tens of thousands of people out there doing the creative work who don't have those followers who aren't in the public eye who are still struggling from a lot of these, these things as well. You, you know, you asked about best practices. So, I'm always cautious to give blanket best practices. Right, everybody's different. Everybody is different. I believe that when we have a clear sense of who we are, when we can gauge what our sort of internal, emotional and spiritual compass is, we can make good decisions. And so whatever that is for an individual. For some, it's intensive trauma therapy. For some, it's getting up and taking a walk in the morning. For some, it's meditation. For some, it is, you know, yoga, whatever it might be. I, I would imagine that most people know what the things that they can do to make themselves feel good are. And I would say just do a little bit more of that in order to find whatever your center is and whatever your place of peace can be. Now, now executing that is a whole different thing, <laughs> right? That's a whole different conversation. And I think something that is, is much easier said than done. If we're in a place of heightened anxiety, heightened depression, acute depression, or a really dark place, like hearing somebody say, just go outside for a walk and be like, well, fuck you. You don't even know how I'm feeling. 
right. it can be condescending in its own way. So my job is just to be supportive of people where they are and to, to talk to them and to be with them and to tell them that they're seen and they're heard even in those really, really dark places. So, so in terms of best practices, like, you know, there's, there's tons out there. There's good research on a lot of the stuff of why this stuff works, but I also am keenly aware and sensitive to the reasons why people have a hard time engaging in some of those activities or getting started with them. But, but I do believe that, you know, we know what's good for us and we know what will help us, whether we do them or not is a whole different thing, but, you know, surround yourself with people you trust and real time analysis of how you feel in a situation is really important too. So gauging how you as an individual feel in an experience doing something or not doing something as sort of data collection for your own life is something that I stress a lot to my clients and the work that I do is like, you don't know what's going to work until you go out there and see if it works. Try to be aware of that. And if it is awesome, doesn't mean you're going to do it the next day. It doesn't mean you're going to do it in a week, but at least you, you sort of have in the back of your mind, like, Oh, this little thing can help me. You sort of have it in your Rolodex of information for your own life. One thing I think a lot of people who experience success have to deal with, and in a lot of cases, it's a very new thing for them, is realizing that people that they trust and love are kind of sycophants. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole head trip of, okay, this is my relative or closest friend and now I don't necessarily trust their motives. How do you suggest sort of being, and this doesn't even just apply to creatives. It doesn't just apply to people of means. I think it's important just as a general rule for humans to have good people around them. And the people that society will tell you are the good people to have around you aren't necessarily the good people to have around you. Sure. How do you suggest that people clearly state those intentions? Again, big, big question. Different for, and it's different for everybody. Right. And, and it is, I guess maybe we could maybe talk about something that I've seen in, in, in practice, right? So when I sometimes have an individual who suffers from trust issues, we really wanna figure out where that stems from. And it could be, I don't want to get too sort of into like psychological theory, but it could be attachment theory, right? It could be something that happened at a very young age. It could be a trauma that happened when they were in high school from a broken relationship. It could be a, a lot of different things and sort of that, that construct why we engage in interpersonal relationships the way that we do. I believe fundamentally that awareness of an issue is the entry point into fixing the issue or working through the issue. So if, you, if an individual finds that they're constantly in environments where they're not trusting of people or they're constantly in interpersonal conflicts with people or there, there's, you know, there's continual issues that are coming up within relationships that, that are, are coming up, like, 
usually the individual, the person will know that this is happening. Like this person's this, this person. And so I would recommend just sort of trying to see where that comes from. What is it about this interaction that makes someone fearful or makes someone untrustworthy? And again, it's probably different for every single person. So I think from a, from a maybe a larger umbrella statement, it's again, trying to be aware of what the experience is for you can be the jump off point to change. I hope that's an, I hope that's not too abstract of an answer. It's, it's not abstract. I'm sort of replaying it back in my head. Once you identify it, what do you do about it? It's a lot of different things you can do about it, right? It's like, if someone realizes that they have a substance abuse problem or issues, sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom for one to change. Sometimes it takes getting in an argument with their, their partner that they didn't want to happen. The, mis the, the mystery to like change and personal development to me is that sometimes we don't know where it comes from and why individuals want to change. What is it about someone that makes them pick up the phone and call a therapist? What is it about someone who finally says, I want to better my relationships with these people, so I'm going to try to work on it, right? Maybe that's going to therapy. Maybe it's joining a support group. Maybe it is running. It, it, there is a mystery to, to why people start to want to change. There's a great sort of philosophy thinker that um, I studied in, in school named Gregory Bateson. And he has a term called the difference that makes a difference. And we don't know sometimes where it comes from, but why is it that on Monday, someone doesn't want to get a divorce? It could have been in a bad relationship for 10 years, right? Tuesday, they don't want to get a divorce, but Wednesday they wake up and they say, it's time for me to get a divorce. There, I believe there is a little bit of a, a mystery to it. And again, if somebody is ready to make a change or ready to evaluate relationships in their lives or, or make behavioral changes, there's, there's lots of different ways that work. And I think figuring out what that is for yourself and oneself is, is really important. We, we think that we think that like therapy is the way to go, right? You got to get into therapy. Maybe not, right? The other thing about therapists is there's 400 different kinds of therapy that are out there, right? It's like- absolutely true. Maybe talk therapy is not your thing. Maybe you need to do EMDR. You're more, you're more body centric and you want, there's some traumas that are sort of lodged in your body. And so it's not, it's not, it's not a cognitive thinking thing. It's a more somatic thing. There are somatic therapists out there or it's an acceptance-based therapy. There, there's lots of different ways to do it just going back to like the substance abuse examples, like some people love AA, some people hate AA or, you know, fellowships. And sometimes it, one thing works that works for one, sometimes harm reduction works for another. So I think being honest with ourselves about what we need as individuals, asking for the help if we feel ready to do that and, and like putting ourselves out there in a vulnerable way can yield a lot of positive results and it can take a shitload of time too yeah that's for sure so switching gears a little bit from talking about 
Zach, the mental health worker, to Zach, the human being. What have you discovered as some ways of taking care of yourself? I mean, you have a demanding gig. And I've always wondered this about people who do psychology. Living with all of everybody else's stuff in your head, mm-hmm. how do you not also then live with everybody else's stuff in your head and not like lose your shit? Sometimes mental health professionals do lose their shit. You know, we say self-care a lot. <laughs> you know, it's sort of the buzzword now. I mean, I was literally going to ask, what do you do for self-care? I just decided <laughs> to word it differently. Uh, again, I can only I speak from my experience. I'll speak what works, what has worked for me. And this is, a, a, I think, a segue into the personal and professional part of me. When I left the music business, I felt completely lost. I was scared and insecure and full of anxiety. I said this earlier, I think it was not in line with my spirit. And it took, to, it took me to get out of that to realize that that was wrong for me. Cause I was just sort of on the conveyor belt of what that was. Like, keep going, keep going. If you stop now, you'll never get there. You know, keep playing that show in that terrible bar, wherever it was. <laughs> there might be somebody there who's gonna see you. And so you just sort of get stuck in that, that cycle of doing it. And then when I was removed from it and had some space from it, I could actually try to figure out who I was and what kind of life I wanted to live and what was true and honest to the person that I wanted to be. And being in the music business as a creator was not it for me. So I started a meditation practice. I started a journaling practice. I started running and I started doing yoga. Sort of, you know, now that I think about them, they are exercise practices that require commitment and require require the commitment to get incremental change slowly and require dedication. So that's what I did from a self-care perspective, which have maintained to today. So I still every day have a meditation practice and a journaling practice. My yoga and running have fallen off because of COVID, but it, uh, all of that aside, still feel as if one day at a time, do the best work I can each sing every single day, show up how I want to show up every single day and the results will come. Never had that in the music business. So, so I just think my spiritual framework has changed a lot. And in terms of your question about how do I stay okay absorbing other people's issues, I have really good boundaries for what I can take on from clients and what I can't take on. Okay. A couple years ago, I was working with, an, uh, with a client of mine who was in recovery and we were very, very close and they relapsed. And I was so distraught because we had been working together <clears throat> for a while. They were sober. And when they relapsed, I took it personal. I was like, what could I have done more? What could I have done differently? And I couldn't sleep for days. And I remember thinking like, I can't do this. This is unsustainable if I want to have a career in this. And so I drew sort of established some really strong boundaries for myself, which are 
I'm not going to a work any harder than the person who's in front of me. It's, it's their lives and not mine. All I can do is in the time that we're together, be there with them, help them in the capacity that I can as a professional. And that's it. And so to be honest, when, when I'm done working, I'm sort of done working. I have colleagues who can't do that. And I would imagine it's really hard to do. <laughs> it, it is hard to do. And, and listen, some, some people hit you differently than other. You form different bonds and different relationships for sure. But, you know, I found out that a client of mine passed away yesterday. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. It hit me, right? It hit me. But I also had to sort of go into the mindset of, this is awful and it's horrible, but it's nothing that I did or didn't do. And so that relieves me of some of my anxieties. It helps me sort of manage it a little differently. And it allows me to just be like, you know, these things happen, unfortunately, in this profession and in this field. Right. And I got a family, you know? And if I bring all of other people's stuff into my household with my kids and my wife, it's not going to go well. I'm not going to be present. And so as I continue in this work, really drawing the boundary for myself, knowing when to, to sort of let it into my being, to not let it into my being, but really, really important to me. And I think that each, each clinician and each person who's a mental health professional probably does this a little differently. I feel lucky that I'm able to create the boundaries that I can. But, but also, Mike, like, I don't have a hard time in my life creating boundaries, right? So, so it's consistent with my, my behavioral path. Where you live, yeah. I don't have a problem saying no. I don't have a problem saying what I want. And so for people who have harder times in those situations, I see that they have harder times with their clients and what they're able to absorb because that's just who they are as people. Now, with two, two little kids and your practice and backline, I, I would imagine <laughs> there's not a lot of free time to pursue anything else that you really want to pursue. Do you still pick up the guitar every now and then? Never. No? Wow. You just made a clean break. I have definitely what I call artist trauma. It's, it's less and less as the years go on, but there were years after I left the music industry where I didn't really listen to much music. I didn't really play. I was really traumatized. So I have a, you know, I have a piano in my house. I have a guitar and sometimes I'll pick it up. I'll, you know, my wheels on the bus. Oh, like, that song gives me so much PTSD. <laughs> I apologize for that. But I play the kids songs every once in a while. I will occasionally go back and listen to some of the music that I made, but not. this is just one of those times in my life where it's just very, very active. That's how I like to say to people. It's a very active time. Sure. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to just sit and relax and be passive in anything because there's always laundry that needs to get done or the kitchen needs to be clean or the kids got to do this or I got to buy this on Amazon. So there's very limited time to sort of find relaxation things. So I try to get my 40 minutes in the morning where I can sort of center myself as best as I can. I also like fully acknowledge that this is where I am and feel blessed to be in a profession that is ironically growing 
in this time period of so much hurt and loss, which is a really strange place for me to be. Mental um, health, it, it, as, and it's not, to me, it's not just COVID related. Over the past, I'd say four or five years, the conversation has amplified so much. And over the last year, as people, as you said, people are dealing with loss, people, whether loss of humans, loss of freedom, just acknowledgement that mental health is something that needs to be taken care of. It has grown exponentially in the past couple of years and then has accelerated over the last year. And I, I, if there's a good thing, I think, that can be taken out of all of the bullshit that has happened in the past 9, 10, 11 months, it is that I think either people are focusing on their own mental health more, or at the very, very least, people know that it is slightly more normalized for people to focus on their own mental health. Yeah, totally. I just wrote down the word space. When people, when things stop, slow down, and people are given, I use this word cautiously, but an opportunity to slow down, to stop the hustle. We allow space to happen. And in that space, we can start evaluating and seeing what our lives are with these things and without these things and really sort of accessing our emotional experience vastly different than we do when we are just go, 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 go. Which is contributing to this larger conversation which is happening in sort of the mental health space. Definitely happening in the music end of the mental health space, which is, you know, people are finally off tour, not finally, but they are off tour for the first time, maybe in 10, 15 years. They don't know what it's like to be at home with their spouse or their partner and children for 10 months, let alone six weeks, right? So so what has that been like? I think so what's, what's happening is with the pause and things and with, things being taken away from us, we are forced in a way to deal with our shit or at least to confront it in a way that perhaps we never did before. And I do think that shifts the conversation a bit and is shifting the conversation for a lot of people if they're accessing some part of their experience that is different or they're seeing something about themselves that they didn't realize before you know, it's all, again, it's all information and how we can continue to better ourselves in the future. Right. I have one last sort of interesting question for you. I'm going to flip it and reword it a little bit. You're in a house with all women. You've got two little girls. How important is it for you to demonstrate a view of maleness or masculinity that is as non-toxic as possible? Such a beautiful question. And I'm allowing some space to think about. I grew up in a household where there were no real sort of gender roles. My father cooked, my father cleaned. So from a modeling perspective, from a young age, I was able to see sort of what a, what a man does or can do. And I'm, you know, I'm exactly like my dad. My wife does not want to do sort of gender norm 
tasks. So I do the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping and the, all of that stuff. And I, you know, I believe that vulnerability is the strongest thing that any man can do. Talking about our emotions, connecting with people is so important. I just believe that communicating with my daughters on a human and emotional level is the only thing to do. I will say that an occupational hazard that I have is that I overshare a lot and I just talk, just not even in, in like this context, but just in, in like normal life, because I want to know what's, what, what is actually going on with people. Is it a, a hazard from the sense of... Maybe it's a hazard because people overshare with me. Maybe, right. Maybe, maybe right. that's what it is, right? right. Uh, but, but in terms of masculinity, you know, I don't even know what that means. It's so, it's, what, what is masculinity? And I, I, I see a lot of male clients. And it's interesting being a straight male therapist because there's not a lot of us in the workforce. So I find that a lot of straight men come to me. This is a little different than your question in terms of the household. But no, I, I, I'm here for it. I think that I think that almost like the modeling of like gender behavior, if you will, can be different. Since I have daughters, we, we live in a sort of like very emotionally available household. We talk about our feelings. We, you know take breaths, we do all of those things. And I am, as a human, more open and more vulnerable and more, my emotions are more accessible and I share them. But I find that clients come to me who are very guarded and they are very dictated by what their gender identity is and what they feel they should be, what a man should be. And through the conversations, I feel like part of the job that I do is modeling in a way that two men can have an emotional exchange with one another and that it's okay and that it's safe. So maybe they can go out into their life and do more of that with their loved ones and their family and or their friends. To see that it's safe to be able to do that with another man is, is really important to me and to, to sort of be an example, if you will, of what is what having sensitivity and emotional awareness and, you know, talking about our fears and anxieties and struggles can be instead of just always trying to show up and be tough or provide and what all those things mean. And then slowly sort of like teasing out what those personality traits mean to each individual. And it's sometimes culturally relevant, sometimes comes with a huge, you know, is dictated by their culture or where they grew up or their, their modeling and all that stuff. So it's just interesting for me to be able to get under the hood with people and sort of figure out what it is that make them tick here or how they want to be better. So that's a, I guess a different answer to your question, but I, I hope that was helpful. That's still a great answer. It, it, it leads me to, leads us to a good place i i really appreciate the conversation i appreciate what you're doing and even sharing your own 
some of the stuff that you've gone through, I think is just a, I'm sure scary and freeing thing all in one. So a lot of mixed emotions. Any, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As it, as it is. And I'll just say, if there's any people out there who are in the music business who need help, they can go to backline.care and we will help find them some resources for what they're going through. And yeah, that seems it's so interesting when people ask me like, what should people, you know, what should people do? And I, I, I always am like, I, I like it is, and I mean this with humility is like, I don't, I don't fucking know. Right. Like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't, I don't know like what someone should do. I, I think that my general take on, on human behavior is it's a, it's, we are a product of our, social construction right we're a product of our lineage our culture our gender our relationships everything that has gone on in our lives is just sort of one little piece of this mosaic of our personality yeah and it's such an interesting thing because sometimes it's like you know, we talk about like the relationship with someone's mom, but it has nothing to do with that. It's like, you'd be surprised at how many people come in and they talk about when I was on the playground in third grade, one time someone pushed me and it has altered their entire sense of themselves. So these like little, we call them little traumas, little T traumas where, and so I think everyone's sort of makeup is so vastly different. Different, yeah. You have to be, we have to be open and flexible enough to, to start really talking to people to try to understand where they come from to best guide them. Well, even that acknowledgement is a great thing because I feel as though there are a lot of people who still believe or don't just don't stop to think that life is not a, a homogenous kind of thing. Like, the fact that everybody's experience is not binary is what ultimately leads to acceptance. You know sure. what I'm saying? Like, okay, I may have gone through this experience and this person may, may have gone through the same experience and seen it differently. And that's okay. This person might have experienced something completely different, but that's okay. It's just, you know, just sort of understanding the vastness of, being a human for sure for sure it's a it's a really it's fascinating it is to me extremely i mean and it's, I, it, it's fascinating to think you know i i'm sort of like a, come from what's called the narrative school of therapy so like the stories that we tell ourselves and how that affects our lives so you know uh, identity like all of that stuff like what what are the things that we tell ourselves about ourselves in the world in which we operate and you know there's always i believe there's always in a there's it, it's always available to rewrite some of those things we can always break them down we can always change them and my my question to a lot of people is just because you haven't seen it or experienced it does that mean it doesn't exist right so <clears throat> that just keeps it open to any sort of possibility. It, you know, maybe that's, I don't like super positive and, but I've seen people make unbelievably like earth shattering shifts in their lives and do the work that's required to change those things, which is 
not easy. But it's, but it's, I remember when in school, when I heard, like, when I started looking at social construction and social construct, constructivism and things like that, I was like, fuck, man, this makes so much sense to me. And like being a white Jewish kid from an upper middle class family, like my world is shaped vastly different than yours is. So of course we're going to look at two things from completely different angles. Yeah. And like, there isn't, it, it was interesting when I, when I work with couples, it's like this. It's like, they, it's like, you're both right. You're both right. Because that's how you see the world. The question is, is can you get to the point where you can see each other's side of the story? Right. And right. have compassion for it and like try to change that a little bit. Yeah. Like it's all about understanding. I think the, the key to getting along with people and to, to sort of even understanding yourself is just to acknowledge that everybody has a different way of seeing things. Yeah. And none of them are necessarily wrong. And most people, they don't even realize that they see the world in one way. They just think it's true. Right. Thank you, Zach. Big shout out to Zach Bohr for taking time out of his schedule to sit down and talk with me. Psychiatry, a family, he's a busy guy. If you'd like to know more about Backline, please check out their website at backline.care and follow them on social media. They're on all the socials. Among the many initiatives Backline has taken on is a partnership with the Black Mental Health Alliance, which will hopefully do great things for people of color in and out the music industry. On Saturday, April 10th, Backline will be hosting a telethon of sorts called Set Break. It will be hosted on Twitch via Relics Magazine's channel and will boast performances from Alanis Morissette, Wyclef Jean, Leon Bridges, Tim Reynolds, Black Pumas, Ben Folds, Sarah Bareilles, Deer Tick, Dawes, and more with a special appearance from yours truly. Make sure you tune in at 2 p.m. to check out the tunes and the good vibes. Detoxicity is hosted and produced by me, Mike Joseph. The music was composed by Calvin Williams, and the logo was designed by Jacob Block. A special thanks to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration. Comments, suggestions, ratings, and any form of feedback is always greatly appreciated. Again, I can be found on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy and on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can drop me a line old school style at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Old school style, we're talking about email as opposed to actual snail mail. So see how far we've come, folks. (laughs) I thank you for listening, and I wish you and your loved ones continued health and safety. Y'all take care. Peace.